Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How deep and how long will the COVID recession be? And how can we build a more resilient economy in its wake? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The economic collapse caused by the COVID-19 pandemic has shattered many records, and it's still unfolding. This crisis has served to expose some of the vulnerabilities of the economy, and one of those is that we have such a large number of people living from check to check. Kathleen Day is finance lecturer at Johns Hopkins University and author of the recent book, Broken Bargain, Banks, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. The people most at risk in a shuttered economy are often the same people who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. In the near term, we're all focused on defeating uh, the virus, but business leaders are now beginning to figure out how do we come back? And our view is quite clearly that we can come back both cleaner and importantly, more resilient. Matt Rogers is a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and co-author of a recent report addressing climate in a post-pandemic world. The usual economic spark plugs like cheap energy aren't providing the boost they normally do, but that opens a chance to think differently about coming out of this economic crisis. We have a really unusual opportunity now to reevaluate when we need to transport ourselves and when we don't. Amy Jaffe is director of the Program on Energy, Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. All three of these experts joined us from their respective homes to explore COVID, climate and the economy starting with Kathleen Day offering a historical comparison between our current moment and other recent economic disasters. Unfortunately, the numbers of this crisis compared to the depression of the 1930s, even though the causes of this are very different and very different than other, every economic crisis is unique, but it also shares some components. One, of course, is it usually engenders some unemployment. So unemployment during the 1930s reached 25%. Now, remember, they didn't keep numbers as well as we do now, but still 25% is what people accept now. And the crisis of 2009 to 2012 was about 10% around the country of average, even though some pockets got into the teens. We are already into the teens. In the last three weeks, up to 17 million people lost their jobs. And I've heard estimates from 13 to 15%. Some people think that's undercounting, and some estimates say it will exceed the 25%. But at any rate, it's a lot. And it's uh, swift and big. And that's what is remarkable about it. And we'll talk a little more about that later. Um, Amy Jaffe, you're an economic modeler. Uh, It it went down fast. People are hoping it can come back fast also. Do we know what the shape, you know, the V shape or all these other shapes out there about (laughs) when we're going to come back and how fast? Do we know? Well, you know, I I like to have uh, two historical references uh, that come from the oil market. uh, And I think they're both important. After September 11. Americans inside the United States stopped flying for a period of time. Um, And actually, we did not go back to normal uh, domestic travel until 2004. So that can give you an idea of the challenge that we face, getting people back out and circulating and in airplanes again, uh, because this is actually probably less irrational uh, than the way people felt after a terrorist attack, which is what are the chances you're going to have every week you know, a terrorist attack in the airport, that was very low probability. So the second one I like to tell is uh, what happened after SARS in China. And China, SARS hit in the end of 2002. And uh, Chinese uh, citizens in Beijing and other big cities became afraid to use public transportation. 
And so car sales uh, in 2003 in China were up 30%. Um, so you do get these responses um, and, and, th and then they sort of lay themselves out over time. And it, it's not quite as, uh, the, I think the downturn can be very sudden. And I think the recovery is, is more gradual than maybe people are thinking. Matt Rogers, your view on McKinsey, sort of, you know, how quickly we will bounce back or this going to be a slow, uncertain climb out. It seems like timeframes keep getting extended. We first thought this was weeks and now it's months and now we're hearing, well, you know, maybe 18 months till there's a, 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 um, a vaccine. Yeah, we've laid out a, a series of scenarios with the McKinsey Global Institute uh, that range from uh, a restoration of the economy in Q2 of, of 20. 21 to uh, Q4 of 2024. I mean, it depends really on how long uh, we stay down because we're down uh, much as, as Kathleen was talking about, we're down much further, I think, than anybody expected. And uh, there are certain parts of the economy that are gonna really struggle to come back. Uh, you know, Amy hit on the oil markets as, as one of those examples. And Amy Jaffe, the oil, there was an oil price war before this between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. What's that about? And isn't cheap energy good for American consumers who are pinched right now? Uh, they're not driving, but isn't generally cheap energy is good for the economy? Well, typically, cheap energy is considered sort of like a stimulus. You know, if, if you're a household, you're spending less on fuel and you're spending uh, less on travel. And, uh, and it stimulates people to travel. And then the flip side is for businesses, I'm not having as high an energy cost so I can hire more people um, and support my business and the economy that way. The problem is because of the pandemic, we're not seeing a lot of those responses. It's not really serving as a stimulus in the same way. People are not likely to take a driving vacation from Memorial Day weekend unless something really changes in terms of the pandemic. And uh, I think it's going to be a while before people are back to the airports. Um, so some of these traditional things that boost the economy uh, when energy prices are low uh, is going to be much harder this time to actually get that boost effect. Matt Rogers, the U.S. is in a different situation energy-wise than in previous crises because the U.S. has the domestic supply, domestic production has grown so much lately. We import, we're basically kind of net neutral, at least the numbers I looked at at 19, the amount of uh, oil that the U.S. exports and imports is about the same. So how does that affect our position right now? We're not vulnerable to vulnerable to uh, international energy markets, but we own more of it ourselves domestically because we pursued this energy independence under both Obama and Trump. Yeah, they, I mean, the, the good news for the U.S. is we have, uh, you know, 100,000 plus people employed in the oil and gas sector uh, in the U.S. And the challenge is that that is now uh, under attack. Uh, and I think the question is, how will employment hold up in that sector, an enormously important part of the uh, of the U.S. Uh, economy? And, and we're in a situation where uh, on the other side of the equation, we have as Amy was saying, uh, um, uh, gasoline demand is down uh, almost 50%, jet fuel demand down 65%. Uh, so it's really hard to get a stimulus benefit uh, when you're actually not using the product. Uh, and, I, and so I think we have a, a real challenge. Refinery runs in the US in the second week in April went down a million barrels a day, uh, but uh, actual production in the US actually stayed, only went down about 100,000 barrels a day. So we have a a real uh, imbalance uh, with supply, although uh, rig counts uh, went down in six weeks, 25%. It took 24 weeks in the last oil downturn to come down that many. So the supply side is trying to adjust, but it is going to be a very difficult adjustment. We just, we hit the brakes on the, on the economy very hard, very fast, and we don't yet have the, the flexibility to adjust the industrial systems in the oil and gas sector at the same rate. Kathleen Day, what are some lessons from past crises in terms of what what works uh, pulling pulling America out of a recession? Of course, it depends on what put it in in the first place. But what are some lessons from history? Right? Yeah, one one thing is is debt. And one of the lessons that we learned the hard way in the last crisis is that it wasn't that people needed more credit. They needed less debt. So the stimulus package now, if you give people a check, then they spend it. They don't need one check. They need a continuous source of income that they can use to pay their groceries and their rent. 
So I use this example of my local, one of my local pizza places here in DC. They, the owners made a decision to close so that their employees could go on unemployment. That gives them a regular check. And those people will be better off than waiting for a $1,200 one-time stimulus. So many people in this country, this crisis would be bad no matter what economically, but it has served to expose some of the vulnerabilities of the economy anyway. And one of those is that we have such a large number of people living from check to check. So any economic dislocation reverberates many times more with that group than with people who can work from home and continue to get a paycheck. Uh, so there's and there's other spots that are vulnerable. But how quickly we'll recover? You know, people are going to be dying to get out of their house, to, to uh, get haircuts, to go and see people again, to go to work. We may never bring the handshake back the way it was. Maybe people will forever use fewer paper towels. I know I will. Um, but I think uh, transportation, maybe not. But I don't think there's going to be the fear of flying the way there was in the after the terrorist attack. But what I'm hoping is the residual effect of this will be maybe to make people believe maybe this pandemic has something to do with climate, maybe. And in any case, maybe we should take science more seriously and not dismiss it. And maybe some of those 100,000 people who are employed in fossil fuels could be better deployed in renewable energy and in helping the infrastructure. So I'm hoping there's going to be some more thought about how to bolster the economy long term and not just look for quick fixes from cheap energy. You know, uh, not to be too technical, but, you know, one of the problems we face uh, that I think a lot of the listeners might not be aware of when you put crude oil through a refining process, um, you get each product. It's very hard to get only diesel fuel. We need to have e-commerce deliveries and not get the jet fuel or not get gasoline uh, or marine fuel. So, uh, one of the problems we have, especially here in the United States, but also somewhat globally, uh, but definitely here in the United States, is we're running out of places to put all this jet fuel that we don't need. Um, and that can cause tremendous logistical problems because we need a certain amount of diesel fuel to move goods around. And, and, and if we run out of storage, it's going to be very challenging logistically um, to keep the fuel system humming. And so, um, and so I do think that's something that uh, companies have brought to the attention of the White House. Um, there's some companies that are looking to put jet fuel on ships and just float the ships around. Um, people are thinking about what kind of storage facilities um, players might have that could be cleaned out and used just for jet fuel. Um, because, you know, we all saw the news reports about dairy farmers dumping their milk somewhere. But, you know, you can't do anything like that with oil. There's no dumping it. So you either have to stop producing it, um, and then you have to worry about what kind of dislocations that is going to cause as we need one part of the barrel, as we call it, in the industry and not another. Well, a lot of climate people would say, given the carbon budget, we only have 10, or I think McKinsey says maybe up to 20 years uh, left of uh, carbon to burn at current rates. Amy Jaffe, why doesn't we leave that oil in the ground rather than trying to refine it and, and store it in different places? We need to keep some of that carbon in the ground if we're going to meet the Paris goals and stabilize the climate. Well, we have a really unusual opportunity now to reevaluate when we need to transport ourselves and when we don't. And we have a tremendous opportunity. I mean, we're doing the show now, you know, over video and taping, and we don't all have to be in the same studio with you. And we're now realizing that technology is pretty strong. So, but we're also social beings. So the question is really going to be, do we have the political will to make good choices about when we're going to use transportation fuel and when we're not? And, and I think I, I feel a little bit more optimistic because we have a lot of technology that can be thrown at this. We've got, you know, automated vehicles coming. We've got, you know, delivery robots and delivery uh, drones. So the question is, how can we organize when we come out of the pandemic to be more carbon efficient? And we need to do that. And that will definitely keep oil under the ground. The question is, though, what do we do about the automobile system? We have 271 million vehicles on the road today in the United States, and only a million of them are electric. So the question is, how are we going to move that forward? How are we going to stay out of our automobiles, especially if people are afraid to use public transportation for a period of time? You know, that is really the critical challenge. And to me, it's going to be a combination of increased use of digital. 
you know, maybe we don't all have to commute to the office every single day. Maybe people could stagger when they go in for in-person meetings. So we have a lot of flexibility to work on this problem, but we must work on the problem from the demand side. You know, when we work on the problem from just curtailing supply, all you do is create tremendous dislocation. We need to work on the problem from the demand side. Yeah, baby, I need a plan. Oh, to understand the life ain't only supply and demand. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the economic impacts of COVID-19 and climate change. Coming up, why acting now matters. What we've realized is we're actually in control in a narrow band of reality. And if we break outside of that narrow band, we are not in control in the way that we thought we could. And the cost of remediation after we lose control is way higher than the cost of prevention today. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about COVID, climate, and the economy with Kathleen Day, finance lecturer at Johns Hopkins University, Amy Jaffe, director of the Program on Energy, Security, and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Matt Rogers, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. Shubahayu Saha is a health scientist at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. He was part of a CDC team that developed a process for local health officials known as BRACE, or Building Resilience Against Climate Effects, which connects the economy, climate, and human health. There is uh, you know, quite a bit of literature and evidence out there which uh, you know, links fluctuations in temperature and precipitation and humidity to the, the spread of infectious diseases. We are seeing it in places where we haven't seen it before. In many places, there's a resurgence of some of these diseases that hadn't happened over a period of time. So it is definitely a huge global concern. It is important for us to uh, you know, not only estimate what the epidemiologic burden is associated with these events, as well as what the economic analogs are. You know, What was the healthcare costs associated with a particular heat wave? What were the healthcare costs associated with an extreme flooding event, you know, things like that, because, you know, as we uh, work with policymakers, if we are to provide economic estimates along with estimates around health impacts, they seem to resonate a lot better. Uh, economics also comes into play when we are thinking about interventions. You know, we work in a resource-constrained environment, and for us to have a sense of not only what interventions are effective, but you know the ones that are cost-effective, more public health practitioners at the community level, at the county and the state level would benefit from that information. So individuals are being impacted in ways that we hadn't foreseen. You know, the situation is imposing a, you know, strain and stress on people that we haven't seen before. And so, you know, as the summer rolls in, you know, as it becomes extremely hot, people who have already been suffering economically and socially from the current situation, uh, you know, would become maybe even more vulnerable to these extreme weather events. The stress that, you know, people are going through right now, I'm afraid that some of that would, you know, make uh, a lot of these communities a lot more vulnerable than they would have been, let's say, when the next heat wave comes in. 
That was Shubahayu Saha, a health scientist at the CDC. Matt Rogers, your response to the comments there about the connections between health and climate. People often think of climate as smokestacks and tailpipes. They don't necessarily think of, of human health for it right away. Well, and the IPCC was uh, clear on the links between health and, and climate. The Stanford Wood uh, Institute has also done a whole set of things. And again, whether it's mosquito-borne diseases or whether it's um, climate change pushing animals out of their natural habitats and closer to uh, human populations, there clearly is a, is a direct link. I think the other link that he highlights that's quite important is um, uh, climate uh, risk is, is actually quite regressive. It hits uh, um, poor communities much harder than it hits rich communities. If you have air conditioning, you're much better able to deal with uh, some of the, those challenges. If you're in a safe home, you're much better able to deal with it. And I think the regressive nature of, of uh, um, both the health issues and the climate issues are actually uh, quite important and, uh, and undermanaged in terms of the investments that, uh, uh, that we're willing to make. So I think this is a, you know, again, if we can learn some lessons from the current crisis, not exacerbate them and prevent the next crisis at least a little bit. I think that that's hope it gives us a little bit of upside as we go forward. Kathleen Day, uh, former White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci, uh, said recently that this COVID uh, crisis is it a chance to address the income gap, which has grown in this country. There's been stagnant wages gains, mostly going to the the very top of, of wealth, uh, as Matt just said. Uh, climate and COVID are regressive. What examples are there from coming out of other crises where America has addressed the, the income gap, the wealth gap in this country? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of great examples, possibly in the 1930s with FDR's programs and, and ways to provide a safety net, the most famous of which is deposit insurance on the money that you have in on deposit in your bank. And believe it or not, FDR was opposed to that, by the way, just to set the record straight. It was the Republicans who favored that. And uh, uh, some some Democrats did, but FDR himself thought it would cause um, some laxity on depositors' part. And uh, in fact, it did. And uh, in the 1980s, uh, the Reagan and Bush administration were able to use deposit insurance to kind of hide the crisis. But anyway, that's that's a whole other story. So, but there is a whittling away that has been uh, ex- accelerated in the recent uh, 15, 20 years in a diminution, a cutting, a shrinking of the middle class. And we really, that, that may be okay for people with air conditioners for a while, but uh, the people who make air conditioners, who are you going to sell them to eventually? Who, who, who's going to buy them? And in fact, there's a whole new phrase that's uh, uh, appropriate but frightening. It's called the thrift economy. And it's from a, a consultant to the beverage industry saying, how are you going to sell to people who don't have any money? How, do you, how are you going to sell this increasing body of people who live from check to check, the working poor? It, I, I, I would wish that there was some remedy. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not hopeful there's going to be one right away, but eventually we're all going to have to think about it because you can't just sell luxury goods to 1%. Who's going to make them? Who's going to buy? It, it, it just doesn't work. Kathleen Day, another connection you write about is the pandemic of 1918 and the connection to the 1929 stock market crash. So how was the pandemic linked to the crash of 29? Well, there were two things. There were a couple things, uh, three main things. So the pandemic was devastating. It was it was depressing. People were dying. I, if I have my numbers right, I think it was 675,000 people worldwide. There's a lot of people who died. It was depressing. Uh, and then there was World War I. Also, many people died. It was depressing. You go into the 1920s, one of the things that contributed to the go-go mentality that contributed to the go-go economy is people trying to forget those two onerous events. And coupled with a third thing, which to me was, I learned uh, the United States government sold war bonds for World War I because it was such an unpopular war and they were trying to get the American public to buy into it. So they sold war bonds in small denominations of of $50 to $100 so that more people would buy in. And that was the public, the American public's first experience with securities, really. And they bought these bonds and were paid back. So they had some extra change in their pockets going into the 20s. They wanted to forget the pandemic, forget the war. And it contributed to the boom cycle of the 20s. Now, there were plenty of, of 
uh, sectors of the economy, like farming and eventually manufacturing, which in the 1920s were not doing well. But it was masked by the go-go mentality of the stock market and some other industries. But part of it was wanting to forget the pandemic. And that may happen here. We'll where people really want to go out and get a haircut and they want to forget the fact that they couldn't for, for several months. Uh, but, you know, you want to make sure that people do it in a, a way that is not um, uh, crazy. But I, I don't I'm not I don't think that will happen here. That was different. Those were three unique events. First experience with securities when you forget those two bad events. But it did contribute mightily to the 1920 go-go. So we might, uh, you don't think we'll have our own roaring 20s. Uh, Amy Amy Jaffe, you've also written about that time about 100 years ago when the way people got around in this country we were switching from horses to cars. Actually, uh, tell us about the, some surprising connection when, when actually electric mobility was, was king and something changed to put oil in the driver's seat. Well, you know, it's a very interesting period of time, you know, around 1910, like at the peak, uh, there were there were many many electric cars on the road, very few gasoline vehicles, and gasoline vehicles had a lot of problems. You know, when we think about gasoline now, you know, the oil industry likes to tell us that it was the winning technology and it's the most dense fuel, and electric cars don't make any sense. But actually, it was the opposite, um, because when you think about it, even today, I mean, how often are you going to go more than thirty miles an hour in a city? So in big cities like New York City people who got around by vehicles uh, called their local taxi company and they came and they took you around, especially, you know, wealthy uh, women of a certain class. And then when the car battery would start to get low, the taxi drivers would bring it back to the central depot. They'd take that battery out of the car, put in a fresh battery and, and go about their way. And so what actually happened, um, building on what Kathleen said, is that we hit World War I and the Germans control the railroads in Europe. And, and the Allies need assistance from the United States. And what do they need the most of? They need trucks to supersede the fact that they don't have access to the railroads to get manpower man moved around, soldiers moved around, and equipment moved around. And so the U.S. government uses, you know, like today, something of the equivalent of the War Powers Act to tell Ford and these other companies that they must build trucks for the war effort. And that puts us squarely into a combustion engine platform in these factories for which we never turn back. And it's a shame because now a century has gone by and now we're trying to make the shift back, at least in urban settings, to electricity because that could make sense and be easy to do. And, and we lost this whole time. We could still be on electricity in New York City. And we, you think about if we were, how easy the carbon transition could have been if we had never moved away from electric vehicles in urban centers. We're talking about climate change and COVID at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Amy Jaffe, Director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations, Matt Rogers, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and co-author of Addressing Climate Change in a Post-Pandemic World, and Kathleen Day, finance lecturer at Johns Hopkins University and author of Broken Bargain, Banks, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. We're going to go to our lightning round now with some quick questions for our three guests, uh, beginning with Matt Rogers on American shoppers. According to Walmart CEO Doug McMillan, week one of quarantine was all about soap and hand sanitizer. Week two was toilet paper. Weeks three and four were spiral ham and baking yeast. <laughs> Matt Rogers, <laughs> what flew off the store shelves in week five? Well, I was going to say flour had to be uh, go with the baking yeast had to be the next uh, bite of that, and then uh, maybe it was time to buy fruit again. I'm I'm going to I'm going to be wrong. But. Uh, hair clippers and hair dye, according to uh, Doug McMillan, Kathleen Day. Which group of phone apps have seen over a sixty percent increase since the quarantine started? Online dating apps, music streaming apps, online therapy apps. Or dog walking apps? Wow. Uh, dating? Online therapy apps. Oh, ones, okay. Uh, kind of makes sense. People having a hard time with the isolation. Amy Jaffe, the IMF predicts the global economy will shrink by what percent this year? 1%, 3%, or more than 10%, according to the IMF World Economic Outlook? 
Well, I'm going to say more than 10% because if they're saying something lower than that, they're wrong. <laughs> they actually said 3%, which seemed really? seemed low to that me. That seems optimistic to me. <laughs> it seems low to me. Also for Amy Jaffe, uh, this is true or false. Oil companies frequently deceive the American people. Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to say yes to that one. Uh, true or false, Kathleen Day, the Trump administration's delayed action on coronavirus cost the country a couple of trillion dollars. I don't know if I can quantify the numerical amount, but it definitely cost money and sickness and probably lives. True or false, Matt Rogers, COVID and climate are both black swan events. Uh, that's quite clearly neither is a black swan event. Both have been warned about for years, and we have the opportunity to be fully prepared uh, for uh, at least climate uh, if we actually take the uh, scientific advice and the forecasting quite seriously. This isn't; th these are not black swan events. These are things that uh, are are well known uh, and risks that we should be prepared for. True or false, Kathleen Day? The economic crisis has been good for sales of your book on economic crises. That actually is true, unfortunately. Um, I, I, uh, people want to know how, how is it the same, how it is different. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I am glad people are reading it because my intent is to get people to understand these economic uh, events that so affect everyone's pocketbook. I'm, I, this book is intended for mainstream readers to explain to them why we keep having these economic crashes. True or false, uh, Amy Jaffe, Californians talk a good game on climate, but they could do a lot more to confront it. Oh, 100%. I know <laughs> that's going to really upset your listeners. Um, but, you know, the big trick on climate change is to change behavior and lower the use of fossil fuels. And that means getting out of your car. That means not having a stream commute. Um, that means thinking thoughtfully about the size of your home um, and, and other kinds of things. Also uh, true or false for Amy Jaffe, oil companies Total and Shell are making serious moves toward cleaner technologies such as batteries and hydrogen. True or false? They are. They are making big investments. Also for Amy, true or false, ExxonMobil's moves away from fossil fuels are all BS. Well, I'd say there are things they're doing that would work, like carbon sequestration, and uh, I guess they've made some investments in algae. But compared to their peers, like Shell and BP and Total and uh, the Italian and Spanish companies, they are way behind. Uh, this is a numerical uh, single number. Uh, Matt Rogers, a maximum number of days you've gone without a shave while staying at home. Two. Two. Pretty good. Well groomed there. Uh, Kathleen Day, number of times your online classes have been Zoom bombed? Zero. Lucky you. Uh, Amy Jaffe, number of days of food you have in your home right now? You know, I'm a logistics uh, person who studies logistics. So I've got like <laughs> three weeks of canned food down in the basement in case something goes wrong with the fuel supply. Amy's a prepper. Uh, okay. First thing, this is association that comes to mind. First thing that comes to mind, unfiltered Kathleen Day, when I say the group of corporate leaders known as the business roundtable. Let's do. Let's get all the benefits of of the government from taxpayers and and not have any oversight. Matt Rogers, first thing that comes to mind when I say Fed Chairman Jerome Powell acted very fast at a massive scale. Uh, also, Matt Rogers, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the phrase "tragedy of the horizon"? Uh, the um, event horizon, this is obviously from uh, Mark Carney, the Bank of England uh, governor, who basically was saying all of a sudden, if, if we actually take resiliency into account, we'll actually plan against events that might be more than a year out or two years out. And we need an event horizon that allows us to make investments in real resiliency. And we need to take advantage of, of time as our friend to uh, reduce uh, emissions today. And I think that is a really important idea. Making time of our friend Kathleen Day. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Paul Volcker? A wise and sage person who I will miss and the financial world is going to miss. He was he was the honest broker. Everyone trusted him, even if they didn't like what he said. They believed him and he had a great track record. He, he was a wonderful person and so smart. 
Yeah, real honorable public servant from Reagan administration through absolutely, through many and, others. and yeah. towards the end of his life was really trying to push against this idea that everything having to do with the government is bad, which is obviously ridiculous. We need government sometimes. What we need is good government. That's what he was pushing for. We live in a political world. Love don't have any place. We're living in times where men commit crimes and crime don't have a face. You're listening to a conversation about the economic impacts of the coronavirus and climate change. This is Climate One. Coming up, changing how we do business to prepare for pandemics and beyond. This just puts a greater emphasis on the resiliency of the supply base. You know, how much inventory do I carry? How long is my supply chain? You know, how robust are my suppliers? That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about COVID, climate, and the economy with Kathleen Day, finance lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. Amy Jaffe, director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations. And Matt Rogers, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. Recording this program from our respective homes means taking audience questions from social media. David Stevens on YouTube asked, economically speaking, how practical would it be to use our economic situation to implement the Green New Deal? Another questioner asks whether there will be any money left for clean infrastructure given the surging national debt caused by the coronavirus crisis. Matt Rogers responds. I think the thing that should make us optimistic is we have interest rates close to zero and the opportunity uh, to make significant investments uh, at very low cost uh, in uh, cleaner technologies and in climate resilience is, is very good. The market is actually starting to price risk appropriately. One of the challenges, it, does the market actually p- price climate risk in? One of the things that we're seeing today is that companies that are involved in renewables are actually proving to be quite resilient, in part because you this is something, A, that customers want. Uh, sales of solar that allow you to control what you're doing are actually going up in the, in the current environment because it gives you control. And the market is actually starting to price risk. So these companies are actually turning out to be quite resilient in a very difficult uh, market environment. And so I think the, the, the idea that we can get low interest rates and adequate risk pricing should allow us to do the kind of capital formation that we need to do in order to both build back uh, from a resilient standpoint and build back from a cleaner uh, standpoint. The opportunity to build back better is actually quite available today. The solar industries said they're concerned about losing half of the 150,000 jobs uh, in solar. Uh, Melissa Lott, uh, Amy Jaffe, someone you referred me to at Columbia, says that there's a, the outbreak is introducing doubt into the renewable energy global supply chain. So can we afford to go green after this? And are, will renewables be hurt? Well, I think that uh, particularly the rooftop um, sector has seen a slowdown. Um, and there has been these disruptions um, for panel manufacturing. You know, one would hope that would get resolved pretty quickly now that Chinese factories and others um, are coming back to work. But I, I, I do think that um, what we're going to see, and we've already seen an initiative like that in Europe and will be part of Europe's recovery, um, is unfortunately countries are going to now realize if something's important to them, um, and of, of vital importance, like electricity, uh, that they have to have supply chains that are closer to home. And I think you're going to see this idea that you're going to rely on one or two suppliers in different locations um, is over for now, even with the COVID um, process here. Those companies that had 3D printing, there's some innovative companies in California that had 3D printing. Uh, even the oil services company Baker Hughes was using 3D printing for certain kinds of drilling equipment, they've shifted 100% to uh, mass and other pharmaceutical needs uh, uh, for the United States. So I think that we're going to see the use of 3D printing accelerate more than it would have. And I think it's going to be put directly onto these vital needs um, that we need for basic energy, basic food, uh, bio and health. Uh, We're going to see a much bigger emphasis now on how to make those things domestic products made here or in North America. And we're gonna, you're going to see a real change in how global trade takes place. Matt Rogers, that's quite a fundamental challenging of globalization. Partly sounds a little bit like Donald Trump there. Hey, you know, America first. 
Well, look, I, I think this idea of much shorter supply chains is a very important uh, one that we, we, we saw this trend happening even before uh, um, COVID, but I think this just puts a greater emphasis on, because this again gets at the resiliency of, of, the, of the supply base. You know, how much inventory do I carry? How long is my supply chain? You know, how uh, um, robust are my suppliers? You know, these are the kinds of risks that, that you know, companies were underestimating and it's now become uh, quite apparent. The other thing I'd, I'd build on Amy's comment, the uh, reliability and resilience of the electric grid is more obvious than it has ever been. We always take that for granted, but when we're all sitting here at home and we depend on that and the, the importance of the local utilities and being able to provide safe, reliable, resilient power to everybody is more important than ever. And I think investing in that kind of infrastructure makes a big difference as we go forward. And that infrastructure is going to promote renewable energy and distributed energy, so smaller scale energy um, that can be repaired quickly. You know, after these big events like Hurricane Sandy and, and so forth, um, and even Hurricane Harvey in Houston, these mini grids that that companies had put in the grocery stores in Houston or some of the uh, greener communities around New York City, um, they bounce back from these you know extreme weather events much more quickly than the centralized grid. And that's, I think, where we're headed with digital and electricity. Um, and it's going to be important. And there's a more positive uh, story for climate on the electricity side of the energy market than on the liquid transportation fuels. Uh, it's harder to, you know, uh, solar and wind have displaced coal. It's harder on the transportation side. Several countries and even a couple of automakers have signaled the end of cars that run on gasoline. That idea is dead on arrival in Washington, D.C. right now. But California State Assemblyman member Phil Ting introduced a bill that would allow only zero emission passenger vehicles to be registered in the state starting in 2040. That bill didn't go very far, and Ting pulled it when opposition arose from some surprising places. The basic idea is if you want clean air, you need clean cars. And we've seen what would happen if we actually moved to clean cars today. Without having millions of cars on the road every day, we see for the first time in a long time, LA's got three weeks running of clean air. The Bay Area air quality is significantly better. We know what the solution is. We just haven't had the will or frankly, some of the technology that's needed. I believe we need to set a deadline. It's like any assignment. If you have an assignment without a deadline, it never gets done. And so without having a deadline for when we need to transition to new clean cars completely, it's very difficult to signal to the industry how far along they should be, how many cars should they be selling. I voted for having that deadline by 2040. I had hoped that it would get further than it did. I had thought that with so many other countries already moving this direction, that us following other countries seemed to be common sense. England, France, India, Norway have already moved to that deadline or even more aggressively. Uh, I was surprised about how few environmental groups as well as electric vehicle groups did not embrace this notion of setting a deadline. Trump had gotten elected. Most environmental groups were very afraid of the rollbacks that have now occurred. They were worried about how California moving in a certain direction was going to hinder some of their work to hold the Obama gains together, which have now been lost. Since then, we've taken certain intermediate steps. Uh, I had a bill last year, AB40, that also got held up, but we were able to put the point of the bill into the budget, which was to actually study how we get to clean cars by 2040. How many charging stations do we need? How many different types of cars do we need? If someone wants to buy a truck and there's no clean option, they're still going to go buy a truck. As you or I know, the most profitable cars continue to be the biggest gas guzzlers, whether it's trucks, uh, minivans, SUVs are the ones with the worst gas mileage, but with the highest profit margins. So really so many auto companies have been reticent to really move to clean cars. That was California State Assembly member Phil Ting. Matt Rogers, a lot in there, but what I heard him say was uh, U.S. not leading on auto, uh, the next era of the uh, personal mobility and auto industry that's happening in other countries, and some surprising opponents to uh, banning internal combustion engines. Your thought, uh, Matt Rogers, on what Phil Ting just said? 
Well, I think the most uh, interesting thing to watch in electric mobility is China. Uh, China has been, was before the crisis, talking about 30 by 30, 30 million electric vehicles coming out of China by 2030. That'd be 15 million for the domestic Chinese market and 15 million for the export markets. Uh, the world market is only 100 million vehicles a year. So th this is about taking market share. Uh, and China believes that they can, uh, as they've done in solar, that they can build electric vehicles better than anyone else in the world can, uh, and that they that can be a new source of industrial uh, um, uh, profitability and growth uh, for the country. And so that idea would change the global automobile industry in a very short period of time. Hey, Greg, let me let me just jump in here with a quote from James A. Baker III, our former Secretary of State and former uh, Secretary of Treasury. This is an article that ran today in Foreign Affairs. The winner of the emerging clean energy race will determine the economic and geopolitical balance of power for decades to come. And he argues that we are behind the times and we're letting China get the lead and we need to fix it. And I agree 200%. I agree 300. It, it, absolutely. China every day is laying miles of fast train tracks. We're doing nothing. Our infrastructure is crumbling while they're making a spanking brand new clean up to the minute transportation system that help run economies. What are we doing? And so that really raises the question how we invest. Uh, Matt Rogers, there's been very little green infrastructure in the current uh, recovery measures coming out of Congress was very different than when you were involved in the Obama administration. Uh, there was a fair amount of clean energy in the stimulus. But it seems that these days there's not all the bets, all the money coming out of Washington is going toward fossils and legacy energy. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what the next uh, um, stimulus bill uh, includes. Obviously, in the prior administration, we spent about $100 billion on clean energy. And importantly, in doing that, it was both about deploying existing clean energy technologies and then driving a rate of innovation that would put the U.S. ahead in a set of, uh, of technologies. You know, we ran 50 different uh, battery technologies in different business models. And you take a look at the role that batteries are now beginning to play in the U.S. grid. You know, investments in innovation uh, uh, really matter uh, in addition to investments in infrastructure. And I think if we can, as we look forward on stimulus, I think those will be markers about how healthy we are coming out. Amy Jaffe, you're involved in the Women in Energy Initiative at Columbia University. And there's been a report recently by CNN that countries led by women uh, have been the, responding to the coronavirus have been the ones that have bent the curve uh, most successfully. So your thoughts on you know, Taiwan, New Zealand, Germany, looking around the countries that have responded best to COVID are run by women, led by women. Well, you know, women are underrated leaders. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things is the academic studies show that, you know, corporations, and I'm sure it's the same thing for government, that have a certain percentage of women on their board of directors or in their C-suites uh, perform better uh, than companies that don't. And one of the things that determines that has to do both with innovation, tend to be more innovative, more creative, um, and also less apt to take failed risky strategies, you know, sort of Enron-like strategies. But the other study that shows, which is just really a terrible thing, is that companies who uh, elect a woman chairman um, run the risk that investors will reject that company for a period of time uh, when the woman is first in tenure. Um, so we still have a lot of unconscious bias uh, that is holding us back uh, from the contribution that women in leadership roles can really provide uh, key advantages. And some of that advantage is not just women versus men. It has to do with diversity in general, whether that's diverse uh, backgrounds, people of different colors, people who have grown up under different socioeconomic uh, means. We really want to do what we really have found in the studies of Columbia, a professor, brilliant professor named Catherine Phillips, is that working groups of professionals uh, that have more diverse backgrounds, it takes them longer to come up with a consensus decision, but they are right 80% of the time, as opposed to a, a group where it is homogeneous, uh, is only right like 30% of the time. And so it's really important uh, to take advantage of the diversity we have here in the United States, both on gender um, and, and more broadly. And, uh, and, and we really lose the opportunity uh, to have better solutions um, and, and better leadership 
uh, when we exclude foods. As we get to the end, I want to think of big ideas. Kathleen Day, sometimes uh, uh, crises generate big, ambitious uh, plans and ideas. What, what were some of the bold ideas, if, if you were to have, uh, based on your studies of past economic crises, what are some big ideas America ought to be thinking about as it tries to get through this COVID crisis? Well, I know no one wants to talk about uh, financial oversight and regulation, but I think this is it, it's not um, a new idea that comes out Occasionally, it's one that people rediscover after every crisis because they forget it a few years after every crisis. And that is starting with the founding fathers. One thing that Jefferson and Hamilton agreed on, even though they disagreed on whether we should have a proliferation of banking, they agreed that if you do have it, you need to have oversight. People forget that having a corporate, being a corporation is a designation that a government gives you on behalf of the of society and people. And as part of getting that designation, being a corporation and having limited liability for your shareholders so you can raise more money, part of that obliges the government, gives an obligation to the government to go in and make sure that that corporation isn't doing things that are harmful for society. So I, I wish people would remember that corporations, in particular in the financial sector, which are both corporations and they have... Um, other benefits from taxpayers. They need oversight, common sense oversight. And we abandon that a few years after every crisis. Matt Rogers, big idea coming out of COVID to address climate and the economy. Massive investment in climate resiliency and in uh, cleaner technologies. We have now is the perfect time to actually make those investments. Uh, we, we've shifted the curve down and we now have the opportunity to lock in those gains and extend those gains uh, and really take the next big risk off the table. Amy Jaffe, last word, big idea that America ought to be thinking about at this time. You know, digital revolution. We need to be investing every dollar we have on the recovery in training people to enter the digital economy, looking at the digital opportunities to reduce emissions, looking at how we move forward with these technologies that we're currently using uh, to cope with this crisis, whether it's 3D printing, we're, we're doing this show over you know, social media and digital, like how to tap these new capabilities we have in a way that makes our economy strong and, and resilient globally and keeps us safe. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about the economic impacts of the COVID pandemic with Amy Jaffe, Director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations, Matt Rogers, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and co-author of a recent report addressing climate in a post-pandemic world, and Kathleen Day, finance lecturer at Johns Hopkins University and author of Broken Bargain, Banks, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Mm -hmm.